Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast in partnership with Lexus. Subscribe now to catch new episodes dropping to your favorite podcast app. Have you ever thrown a big party? One of those parties where people stay really late and it's an awesome evening. And then at home time, when they're gone at 2 a.m., all that's left is you. Crickets, perhaps a wayward cockroach. And as the last person shuts the door behind them, you're left with the debris of everyone else's good time while they go home to their clean spaces and go to bed without a clear up in the world to worry about. It's all up to you. Now you can either carry on between two and four in whatever state you're in and put all your stuff away... But wouldn't it be nice to know that that afternoon you'd anticipated that your so-called friends would be around to help you? Not. And you would simply get somebody to pop in at 10 the next morning and help you clean up. You'd taken out your phone, you'd opened an app and booked the services of a cleaner. Now you can go to bed without the dread of the task ahead of you. But first, back to the beginning. I need you to picture the scene. We're in San Francisco. It's 2014. There are not too many smartphones about, but they're beginning to get used in different ways to previous generation devices. Apps are becoming a thing. There's a young couple. They need a cab. They're told they can do it via an app on their phone. One of them, Swedish-born Alan Ribic, is a tech junkie. He gets it immediately, downloads the app, hits a few buttons, and the car arrives. His wife, Aisha Pandor, who's got a PhD in human genetics and recently acquired business degree from the UCT Graduate School of Business, is with him. We had to go somewhere and we sort of, we weren't driving, you know, he didn't have a car with him. And he hailed a Lyft cab and this car shows up with a big pink moustache on it. And it was just the most incredible experience that through your phone, you're able to open up an app, get a stranger to come and pick you up clearly identify what car the stranger's in, jump into the car without any worries, and they'll take you to where you need to go. And it was just such a seamless transaction. And that stayed in our minds. I think we you know, didn't really do much with it except for just being quite awestruck by the whole experience. And then we're thinking through our own business ideas and it kind of it came up again. Aisha Pandor is descended from South Africa's political royalty. Her great-grandfather, Z.K. Matthews, was the catalyst of South Africa's Freedom Charter, in 1953. Her grandfather Joe, a political activist, and mother Naledi, a senior government minister. Her formative years were spent in exile in Botswana, ahead of South Africa's transition to democracy, and when that happened, she grew up and was educated in Cape Town. Aisha, though, is taking a different path to her forebears, but with similar ideals, making people's lives better, or at least trying to do so. The difference now is that she is using business principles to achieve that outcome. Aisha, now back in San Francisco, has been looking at new markets for the idea which came to her and husband Alan following that fateful cab ride that got them thinking differently about how to marry problems with solutions from business using cutting-edge technology. Out of that came Sweep South, a platform designed to transform the dynamics of the domestic work sector 
which has now morphed into a business on which you can list any service you can think of. This week, the trials and tribulations of trying to change the world. Here's a chat with Aisha Pandal. We like the idea of marketplace businesses because there are two sides of a market that you're serving with a solution and, and because they're difficult, which means that if you can build a product which solves a challenge well, it becomes really defensible and, and ideally you can create this sort of viral flywheel that just helps the business grow on both sides. So we'd explored a couple of marketplace businesses and then while we were busy doing research and sort of, you know, coming up with business plans and that sort of thing and, you know, doing the the lean canvas model to try and query our own ideas and interrogate them, our helper and nanny said that she was going to be going away on, on holiday. And that's where, you know, trying to find a replacement, but then also that awesome experience with grabbing a lift ride came back up again. And we thought, let's build something that addresses this challenge that we've just had in finding someone that we trust who's available at the right time. You know, we went eyes wide open into the industry, knew that this is particularly in South Africa, but in the rest of the world is an industry that has been plagued by centuries of of challenges. And so it became on the one hand a a great challenge to address from a business point of view in the sense that, you know, can you build a marketplace that in South Africa and other emerging markets helps to form these connections between two sides? But actually at the same time, can you try and, through this technology, address some of the longstanding issues that exist and do that over time, obviously, because you're not going to, in a couple of years or even a couple of decades, you know, address centuries worth of issues. You, you say issues and you say challenges. You're very diplomatic about it. I mean, this is an industry which is one of the most abusive on earth. You have people who are born into poverty and in many cases don't have an option but to go into household service and they do so as a means to provide for a family. And often, if they end up in the wrong kind of family, they find themselves taken advantage of and their poverty is taken advantage of and they have very few options. And what you chose to do by creating, I'm going to call it the Uber-like platform, uh, because most people will understand that concept, where people can work as much as they like or as little as they like, when they like, for whom they like, provided that they like the person's rating and they are happy with the offer on the table, Suddenly, you democratize something as contentious as domestic work, and that is a bit of a revolution. Yeah, I mean, you start to shift the the balance of power a little bit more towards people who are doing the work. And I think, you know, it then becomes if I'm if I'm doing this work, and firstly, I just have more agency and and more ownership around the work that I'm doing. But I can also say I can dictate who I want to who I want to work with. If I'm someone who's rated highly. And, you know, I'm in demand. I can start to pick and choose which jobs I go to and what suits what I want to earn and my lifestyle. And I think importantly, you mentioned, you know, just general choice and choice around making life decisions. And I think one of the most incredible and rewarding things that we've seen in in how the platform has grown is how many people and women in particular who find work through the platform are saying, I'm taking the opportunity of this being a flexible platform to study or to, you know, upskill myself in terms of doing other work, which might not be full time, but which is going to give me work experience. And so we've got a quite a high rate. I think the last time we checked, it was around 22, 23% of people working through the platform who who are studying or in other ways upskilling themselves. And I think that's for me, one of the most tragic things about this industry is that traditionally it's an industry where you get in, you're paid badly, there isn't much choice and you don't really have much opportunity to to leave and to have exposure to other types of work yeah. or education which would allow you to move past this industry. It's a poverty trap and for, for many people in many respects. Yeah. 
You then expanded it into other industries. You said, okay, hold on a second, but dog walkers, what about house sitters? What about people who are plumbers and got other skills and would like to also have access to similar flexible working conditions? And you created Sweep South Connect, and that then broadened the scope and the reach of Sweep South. You expanded the model into Kenya and into Nigeria, and that came with a a set of complexities, which we can touch on in just a moment. Um, And then about two years ago, maybe more, I've lost track of time, um, you bought a slightly older tech business in Egypt called Fikhaldima, which you then... And it's just the most astonishing set of circumstances. And if you brought that all on board and digitized it and brought it into the mobile age from the desktop age. Yeah, we did. And so I think one of the the incredible things that Alan specifically did in, in sort of building Sweep South, you know, from the get-go was building it in a way that it was agnostic to the type of service. I think we both knew that if we wanted to dedicate a big portion of our, our sort of working lives to building something, we wanted to build something that was able to be scalable and at least have the opportunity to address, you know, reaching as many of these. And in South Africa, it's, you know, we have a million domestic workers. And, you know, when you extend that to other markets, it's it numbers in the in the tens of millions. And so it was thinking about how do we, from the get-go, build this platform in a way that it's scalable. And we've had yeah, just phenomenal opportunity to grow that in terms of the services. Uh, it, it made sense to start off with, with the problem that we had. We were fortunate in that the problem we had meant that it was a repeatable business. You know, so we were building relationship with both home service providers, you know, domestic workers, cleaners, nannies, uh, and customers on a long-term basis, and then could layer other services on top of that. And then, as you say, you know, start once we'd gotten good product market fit and and really understood the dynamics of the business well in the South African market, could start thinking about additional markets, either through organic growth or through the acquisition of, of a company like Fulfetmo, who has had phenomenal growth off of the back of that acquisition and the integration of not just the technology, but also just operations, how we do things that at sweeps out the lessons that we've learned through uh, scaling in the South African market and, and then how some of that can be applied to Egypt, which is a, a, a huge market on its own as well. What is the saying, Africa is not a country? These are vastly different economies, vastly different countries, vastly different cultural experiences in terms of the way in which people behave, the way in which currencies work, the way in which payment systems work. I think you've had several collective baptisms of fire in many respects in in, in building these businesses. Just a a quick view of some of the key differences as they sort of materialized and you moved into new markets. Yeah, I mean, I think it's everything from your consumer base to paying customers and how they perceive these services and use these services outside of a platform like Sweep South and how do you market to them? So um, we've had a lot of growth in e-commerce and consuming online services and products through apps, for example, in South Africa, but that's not necessarily the case in in all African markets. So, you know, how do you sort of market to customers and explain what you do and how do you get them to download the app or is it a website for the first time? And that's different in different markets. Do people, you know, browse online and use Google a lot? Like in South Africa or in a market like Kenya, do you need to pay more attention to above the line marketing and, and you know, where people spend a lot of time in traffic? 
You've got to think about, you know, radio or billboards. And then, of course, COVID has has also dented that and sort of changed that whole picture. Because if you're not going to the office and you're relying on, on marketing to people through radio, that throws a bit of a spanner in the works. So it's been a real learning experience and, and baptism of fire. And they've definitely been challenges and some failures in how we've launched and executed in the different markets. A good example is also just thinking about Kenya and, and payments. And, um, you know, in South Africa, a large portion of, of bookings will be through card. We also have other options for sort of postpaid through EFT or whatever the case is. But the vast majority of customers will have some sort of card that they can just load onto the platform and it's very seamless. And in Kenya, if you're not offering M-Pesa, for example, as a payment option, you're cutting into a significant amount of your addressable market. And then in a market like Egypt, you know, cash on delivery is is still really big. And so you've got to cater for that. And then, you know, that that also changes the logistics around how things work. You can't make the assumption when you start a platform business that everybody works in the same way. You deliver a service, you get paid. It's nice and simple. You've got your card details loaded onto an application. Every time you make a booking, the payment is made. Ka-ching, ka-ching. No money changes hands. No animals are in the process. And it's really... Seamless. The, suddenly, this has seams, this has fault lines, this has complexity attached to it. It's no longer as clear and simple as perhaps the original vision may have been. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's part of being an entrepreneur. And I think part of being an entrepreneur in, in markets that are, um, on the one hand, less sort of seamless across the board infrastructure. So if you think about Europe or, or the US, there's a lot more relative homogeneity in terms of, you know, this is the experience that most people in this market will have. Whereas I think across the continent, you have big differences across markets that do make it more challenging. I think that's an opportunity. And I think the big opportunity with entrepreneurs who are building on the African continent is that you have the chance to be part of dictating what that basic infrastructure looks like and being part of that process. But it does definitely make things a lot more difficult. And so, yes, it's work, but I think, you know, the horizon in terms of how fast you're able to grow and how many challenges you're expecting to have to address that are adjacent and not necessarily like exactly along the line of, you know, the company's growth and how you're expecting to grow from a straight bookings or, or top line or, or revenue sort of performance point of view. It does hinder that. And on the other hand, I've been grateful that we haven't known about a lot of these things because it's, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss and and you'll deal with it when you come across it. So Robbie, I think it's a mix of Robbie eyes open, but also, you know, yeah. Robin Rosen well. said the same thing. He said, you've got to be naive. You've actually got to be a bit <laughs> stupid to go and do yeah. what, what they've done and expanding to 35 different countries in the same way as you've expanded into new markets. Because if you do know the complexity and the difficulty and the hazards of many of these things, you simply don't do it because actually it's too flipping yeah. hard. But once you're in it, you've got no choice. You've got to sink or swim. <laughs> So I think it's a fallacy that that entrepreneurs are people who love taking risks. But I think we are a lot more comfortable with taking calculated risks. And I think where calculated comes in is going, there are things that I don't know. How confident am I that when I come across those things that I don't know that I don't know, I'm going to be able to work through them? You, you don't sort of have your eyes completely closed, but you go, I know that there are going to be risks. And how equipped do I feel? <laughs> As a as a person, as someone who's building a team to to tackle to tackle those things, and being the person, of course, who has to have the solutions to the problems because there will be problems, and somehow you have teams that expect you to know the answers, and you don't. Frankly, how do you cope when you get to a solution when you simply don't know the answer? 
Yeah, I think um, it's something that you have to learn to navigate. And I think firstly, just as this personality type that I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to have is you want to solve things yourself and you want to be the person who is executing and who's charging through. And then you inevitably will get to a point where you can't do that anymore because you can't know everything. And also because particularly as a first-time founder, you're experiencing a lot of these challenges for the first time. And, you know, you just get to this point where sort of your rate of growth and the business rate of growth can sort of can start running apart a little bit. And so it's it's not true that you have to be the person who who solves everything. And I think as you scale, the the team members that you bring on board, the investors that you bring on board, the advisors that you have, mentors become increasingly important. And sometimes it's even just to say, yeah, like you're not really there in terms of the solution, but that's normal and, you know, and that's okay and you'll get there. But I certainly have lost the notion a long time ago that like I need to or even should be the person with with all the answers. We've had the the benefit of working with incredible people as part of the Sweep South team and also just had really, really great uh, investors come on board who've been just great in terms of experience, but also just super aligned in terms of understanding how difficult this challenge is and and bringing on board their own expertise and that of their networks to to just help solve it. Coming up on Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast. I guess there's, there's a bit of sourness with some of the, the earliest stage South African investors who passed because, you know, even the thinking, you know, that we've gotten too expensive or that they'd missed the chance, we've multiplied between rounds investors' return on, on the capital that they invested in the previous round with every single round. What defines genius? A brilliant mind? Unsurpassed ambition? Perhaps... Lexus believes it's about something different. Authenticity. This lies in the ability to follow that one thing that drives you, that one true part of who you are. That is the root of genius. And that's the authenticity you experience when you're behind the wheel of a Lexus. It's just one way that Lexus makes luxury personal. Book a test drive at your nearest Lexus dealer and experience amazing. Talk to me about capital and raising capital. You famously bootstrapped the business with very little. You moved back home with your mum and dad. And the last thing they were expecting was to have you and Alan arrive on their doorstep with two small kids saying, you know, that PhD I did in human genetics and that business degree. Well, mm. we're going to use the business degree part of it. And Alan's got coding skills and that's fine, except we can't afford to live by ourselves anymore. So we're moving in here. Mom, of course, is a very senior government official. Dad is a businessman with many years of experience. You move back home and you start hustling. You start entering competitions and you start winning prizes. And that provides you with some funding. You also go through various funding rounds as you become bigger and more professional in your approach. What strikes me is really quite tragic is that you're not raising capital in South Africa. You're raising quite a lot of foreign capital. You're raising quite a lot of American capital. You come to the attention of various sort of family offices outside of South Africa. Was it deliberate on your part or was it just a really difficult sell in your home market? So, you know, we've raised a combination of South African capital and, and international and primarily, you know, in, in the case of international US-based. I think definitely had wanted to strike a balance between South African investors who understand this space and how it relates to emerging markets and the opportunity, uh, so South African slash African, and, and then also international investors who 
have a lot more in terms of time and exposure experience with just you know venture capital as a as an asset class and you know and, and setting up funds and thinking about how to structure deals and so it's been good having that balance you know so we for example when we signed our first safe note which is a, a funding instrument I think we were the first South African company to use a safe convertible note to fund the business. And so there were a lot of firsts, you know, when we started back in, in 2014. And part of that, again, was driven by having this influence of, of international investors to complement the South African investors that we, were, that we were bringing on board. But I think, you know, I think it's important to, to have a diverse investor base and sort of use them not just as investors, but also the networks that they're able to, to tap into. And, and, and unfortunately, also, as we've grown... And I can see the the ecosystem, the VC ecosystem on the continent, you know, really growing and maturing. But as we've grown, it's also been more difficult to attract the the sort of quantum of funding that we've needed for, for our next stage from just purely South African or African investors. I talked to VCs. You like the fish that got away. And I think like most fishing stories, the fish gets bigger every time I ask about why you didn't get huge support. And I think there was some skepticism as to whether or not you truly could revolutionize an industry. And I think there was also a sense that by the time people realized that you were onto something, you were then too big and expensive to back for many South yeah. African VCs. And so you had to go international. Susan and Michael Dell have been very good about investing and you had Nusbaps when they were doing that sort of thing through the foundry. Mm -hmm. You were a showcase investment of theirs. And so there's been a huge amount of success and people have bought into the Africa vision. And the last time we chatted, you were saying we're eyeing Latin America. The structures of societies are not dissimilar. There is potentially mm -hmm. an opportunity and you have been spending a lot more time in the United States, and I guess that's where the money is, and it's easier to access Latin America out of the United States. Then you've been spending a bit more time there assessing new markets and new opportunities. What have you found? Firstly, to say about investors, we, so during SweepSouth's last funding round, brought on uh, Alifair IDF, um, who are a, a fund based between Nigeria and South Africa and who have been just incredible. So impact focused, gender lens focused, they raised a $100 million fund on the continent. Again, you know, you're seeing this really great activity with really high quality, high caliber investors on the continent. And so that's changed over time. And I think the funny thing is, and I guess there's, there's a bit of sourness with some of the, the earlier stage South African investors who passed because you know, even the thinking, you know, that we've gotten too expensive or that they'd missed the chance, we've multiplied between rounds investors return on on the capital that they invested in the previous round with every single round that we've raised. And so, you know, I think I think with African investors, firstly, there are investors who are active and who invest at later stages. And again, Alethea IDF is a great example of that. And Polo Hadebe has been wonderful. But there are opportunities, right, on the continent. And I think this sort of notion that when companies get too big, Europe or the US is where they have to look. I think that's becoming less and less true and thankfully so. But yeah, it's definitely looking sort of beyond South Africa. I think a, a Latin America and, and, and emerging markets outside of Africa in general being, being really interesting. I think something that we've sort of had to bear in mind from a market exposure point of view is just, you know, where the world is going and how unfortunately unshielded a lot of these markets are to to just turbulence in in macroeconomic markets and so i think it's always a a balance between what makes a market interesting 
and sort of what are the, the sort of internal influences that could potentially make it interesting from a return point of view, but also potential risk in those markets and what's happening at a, at a more macro level. Fools go where angels fear to tread. We look at Argentina's inflation problem running at over 100% at the moment. You don't go into an environment like that and invest in a hurry. I think we're waiting to see how Brazil and the new management yeah. pans out. And so are you actively pursuing opportunities in those markets or are you watching and waiting? I think it's a watching and waiting. And I think, you know, we're also overall re-looking at strategy. I think, you know, what's important for us is there's the growth element and then there is also the impact element. And I think, you know, even within more, quote unquote, economically developed markets, there's still both growth opportunity and also the opportunity to make an impact. I think, you know, workers in many more developed markets who are part of this industry still face the issues that African and Latin American domestic workers, nannies, home service providers face. So it's a it's a wait and see, but you know, I think also looking at the the broader opportunity a little bit differently. Meaning what? You can't drop a clanger like that and say, hold on a second, don't expect a follow-up question. What do you mean the broader opportunity slightly differently? In our view, maybe Sweep South is is looking at more developed markets as well. Maybe, Ooh. you know, a, a European launch, a, a US launch or something that's that's on the cards. And I think from an impact point of view, which is really important to us, I think a lot of these challenges still exist and you have a lot of migrant workers doing, you know, doing this sort of work who don't have the same protections as, as citizens who are not paid well. And so, you know, I think that's something that that's interesting for us to at least explore. And I mean, funders, how are they looking at the opportunity? I mean, SAB Miller, of course, famously went into emerging markets. And gradually, as they were more exposed to corporate funding and to market funding, they needed to give investors hope and they ended up investing in Miller in the United States and they ended up in buying Peroni and Foster's and many other brands, of course, over time as well. And that's also to give, I suppose, an assurance to funders that you're not just an emerging markets play, that there is a hard currency element potential here for the future. And that becomes potentially important. I think Sweep South is in a good position where there was a fundraise that was closed mid last year. $14 million. Um, so, yes. so in terms of a little bit of you know cash in the bank and dry gunpowder, the business is in a comfortable position. But I think, yeah, you know, looking at, at what opportunities exist in terms of what's on the ground in some of these markets is, is definitely going to be you know, part of that, that evaluation of, of those markets. You're approaching a 10-year anniversary. You look back at the last decade, what is your sort of key learning during that period? Don't ever go into business for yourself or actually this is the, the best thing we could ever have done? I think, I mean, in general, depending on your, your personality and if this is for you, the journey of entrepreneurship is the most exciting but also most scary thing <laughs> I've ever done in my life. And it's a, an incredible way to learn about yourself and really be faced with the reality of the things that you are good at and can count on yourself for and can be counted on for, but also the things that you need to work on. And so I think approaching 10 years, just feeling incredibly grateful like that our lives have taken this turn and, and we've been able to experience having an idea and then building it into something tangible and being able to do that with the support of incredible people 
Sweep South has a has a wonderful team. Our, you know, our, the first employee who joined the company is the MD of the company and is just an absolute force within the business. And to see the growth of people like that and their growth in terms of role and prominence within the businesses has been has been awesome. And in the impact part as well. And and to, to again say that, you know, whatever happens, you've impacted tens of thousands of women who in turn will in their families and communities have impacted hundreds of thousands. I think as founders to sort of reflect back on that is it's it's a it's it's a lot. It's incredible. There's a huge amount of satisfaction that comes with that. Yet unless you are the founder of Patagonia, who when he discovered he'd become a billionaire by virtue of the fact that people just loved the products that he made and the marketing and the story behind Patagonia, he got to become dollar billionaire, became terribly embarrassed and gave the company to a trust um, so uh, to, to fight climate change because that's his true passion project at the end of his working career and his family agreed that he should do it. Everybody wants to be financially successful. Is this a business that is one that will satisfy the Ribic Pandora household's desire for social mobility into the future? Yeah, I mean, I think you've also got to be careful building technology businesses not to get into the hype of only thinking that you're successful once you're a billionaire or a unicorn. I think that's, you know, an amazing long-term goal to have. But I think if you use that to define your criteria of of being successful, you can lose out on on a lot of amazing things that you've done, but also, you know, how much does it take to be financially successful, financially independent. And this is something that Alan, not Craig Jr. actually said to me quite early on in our journey with Sweep South is just don't become tricked into constantly working towards this goal that is potentially very far away to the detriment of having your feet on the ground and seeing what you're building and the benefit of what you're building. So I think, you know, in terms of the value of the business, it's probably overall, it's well past, can you become long-term financially independent from this? I think what we're really focused on now is like, how do you continue to build value? How do you do it in a way where, where you're having fun? How do you equip the team to be a big part of that? Because after 10 years, you also are tired and have thought through a lot of things. And, you know, so fresh blood is something that we're we're thinking about. And And then again, impact, you know, and I think at the end of the day, and you use Patagonia as an example, you know, it's also about running a business that positively impacts people. And I think for me, that's far more gratifying both after doing this for 10 years, but also just based on, you know, my background and who my parents and grandparents and great grandparents are. I think it's it's way more important to say, have you have you done something that adds value, that people care about, that's made the world a better place, you know, the people who who engage with your business. Still school fees. There's still, you know, life still has to happen. Is it still exciting you in the way that it did on that first evening where you caught the lift cab? with the magic of this device and smartphones were fairly new back then and suddenly the the possibility of what these devices could do from a social perspective dawned upon you is it still exciting i think what's exciting is is seeing what's happening in technology in the rest of the world and thinking about how that grows markets in total and then thinking about how that can be applied to you know, to, to businesses like Sweep South, but just in general. I mean, I'm really passionate about technology and progress on the African continent and entrepreneurs who are building things. So what's really exciting is thinking about like what's the next phase of that. And again, how do you how do you build value into growing into things like digital currencies and financial services? And, you know, how do you think about the benefits of machine learning and AI and how how they apply to these models? And that makes it exciting as kind of, you know, looking at 
progress and traction in the rest of the world and how that can apply to just growing this business, this industry? Yeah, you've got to be thinking expansively, don't you? You, you, can't, you can't be trapped within a framework. There are going to be... Well, the world changes, exactly. And it changes quickly. And, and the world of technology changes incredibly quickly. I mean, I was looking at the shift from the thinking around kind of cryptocurrency and then the metaverse and then AI and you know, things things shift. And, and that's not a bad thing. Sometimes there's sort of criticism about how fickle people in this industry can be and you sort of jump from one thing to the next. But I think that's completely appropriate. That's how you sort of drive progress and think about the utility of new technologies and, and innovation. So it's incredibly exciting. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm really just excited about everything that's happening and the potential <laughs> that it has uh, to, to benefit like a whole lot of industries on the African continent, but also like this new wave of young entrepreneurs who, who, who are going to be building off the back of these technologies. That is Aisha Pandel, the co-founder of Sweep South with husband Alan Ribic. Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast in partnership with Lexus. Subscribe now to your favorite podcast app. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can see me experience amazing in the brand new Lexus RX350 by clicking on the link in the blurb of this episode. Go on. You know you want to.